Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Amen. Now, one of the things that we have been noting from our study of the book of Hebrews is that this particular congregation to whom the author is writing seems to be falling behind in their growth as Christians. Indeed, some of them seem to almost be at the point of turning away from the gospel itself, if that were possible for a believer to do. And so today, just in two parts, we want to talk about how we press on in the Christian life in maturity. How do we grow in grace? Remember, boys and girls, we've been saying for the last few weeks that the Christian life is like riding your tricycle or your bicycle, depending how advanced a rider you are, that you have to keep pedaling if you are going to make a progress in the Christian life. Now, today's lesson is in two parts. First of all, we're going to look from verse 1 at the exhortation given to us to press on to maturity. Press on to maturity. Secondly, we're going to, from verse 1 and 2, look at what we're going to call the first principles of the Christian faith. The first principles of the Christian faith, and then we'll close also with some applications. So, number one, press on towards maturity from verse 1, and then from verse 1 and 2, we're going to look at the first principles of Christianity with applications here. All right, so let's look at verse 1 together. Again, our text reads as follows. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. That's going to be where point number one comes from, the second half of verse one and verse two will be the second point. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So the author here is saying to this congregation of believers that they need to be growing in grace. They need to be making further progress than they have been making here. They are to press forward into greater maturation. Now, this is true for all of us, no matter our age or no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, we have more to go. There's always further that we could go in the Christian life. So this exhortation here, I don't want you to think, well, this applies to people who are new in Jesus Christ. And I've been walking with the Lord for many decades, and there is really nothing here for me. This exhortation actually is for all of us. We all need this as well, congregation, pastor alike. You know, sometimes I read old books. You know that, right? And one of the things that I have found about reading old sermons is I am convicted that, one, these ministers often would apply so much scripture in their sermons from passages that weren't your everyday passages, so to speak, sometimes from the minor prophets and such. The other thing that impresses me about that is that these ministers expected that their congregation would have some knowledge 
of those verses and to apply those verses in their own life. And as one of the benefits, I think, of reading uh, material from different ages is it can challenge us. We think because we have a lot of technology, surely we're fairly mature. But I think we need to be careful in recognizing that though we have made greater advancements in certain areas of knowledge and science, it doesn't mean automatically that we are the greatest in terms of maturity in the Christian walk. And so I think there's a lot that we can do to further our own growth in grace. Now, the church has to be um, introducing the gospel to our neighbors and also teaching the first principles to those who are new in Jesus Christ. One of the challenges that any church has or any pastor or elders is to be able to feed the people according to their ability. So, for example, there are those in our community who need the basic understandings of Jesus Christ. I can remember myself at a very young age asking a boyhood friend when I was probably in first grade, who is Jesus Christ? And we were talking about that. And so there are people who don't really have a knowledge of who he is. They know the name. They know he's a religious leader. But they really may not even know what it is that he primarily did. And so we as a church must always be preaching Christ and him crucified. We have to give the gospel and the basics to those that may not know anything about the Bible. I can remember a long time ago, I thought the second book of the Bible was pronounced Exodus. I didn't, I was like, what is this book Exodus here? Um, and, and so we, we have to keep that in mind, um, that not everybody has grown up in a church, and uh, they may not know the basics of Christianity. So the church has to be giving the gospel. But there are those also who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but they are new in the faith, and they are compared to young children or babes. And so the Bible speaks of them as needing the milk of the word. And that's what we're going to look at um, here today. We're going to look at some of the, what are the first principles that you and I may need to bring to people who are new in the faith. Or if you're new in the faith and you say, well, where do I start, pastor? How do I begin with Jesus Christ? I've taken Jesus Christ as my own Lord and Savior, and I'm, I've made a profession of faith, or I'm on the verge of making a profession of faith. But what are the first things we need to know and to study. And so we're going to look at that in the, in the second point. But here, in verse 1, um, the author of Hebrews is saying, but we also need at some point to go beyond that. And we need to reach those points in our walk with the Lord where we are going deeper into the Bible and that we are going on to other doctrines that we need to know to be a well-rounded, full-orbed, faithful, evangelical Christian. We can't always be feeding on the milk all the time. Milk is great, and as Matthew Henry said, that the mature need to be patient with the young so that they can receive the milk, and the, milk and the young need to understand 
that there are going to be some things that are difficult for them to understand because the pastor or the church needs to feed the mature. They need meat. And so both groups need grace uh, to make sure that the whole church is properly fed. Now, let me make a, a few applications here from this verse here. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity. First of all, I want to speak to those of you who are young. Those of you who are children or young teenagers or maybe young in the faith, new believers. Uh, we need to first start with you. And one of the good places to start in addition to reading your Bible, is also studying your catechism. Right here, I keep mine always in my Bible here. This is a very handy little way for you to be growing in maturity. This is where you learn a lot of the basics about sin and redemption and the person of Christ and what Christ has done and how do I live as a Christian, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer. But also... I do want to speak to those of you who are older. And I want to say to us that we too must press on. History shows that, um, at least military history, one of the lessons of military history, I was a history major, but one of the lessons I think that comes with military history is to learn uh, that the need to press on, especially when some type of victory has been gained on the battlefield. Many times a victory is gained on the battlefield, but that general failed to follow up quickly. And, and so the advantage gained in that battle tactically was lost um, later because of a lack of follow-up. And I think in similar ways, the Christian life is like that, that the Lord by his grace will give success to your soul, maybe new grace or a new season of refreshment by the Spirit that comes into your life. And I want to urge you, whether you're young or you're old, that you not waste those advantages. Let's say, for example, that the Lord blesses you at the Lord's table. And you come to the Lord's table, and it's almost as if you see the cross of Christ with the eyes of faith, with a new sense of power, a new sense of blessing comes to your soul, and a refreshment Maybe you've been fatigued for months at a time in weariness. Maybe weariness in well-doing, not necessarily backsliding. You've been doing the things you're supposed to do. But nevertheless, the Lord comes to you in the worship service and you feel this new strengthening within your soul. What do you do with that? I want to encourage you to press on. Take advantage of those new blessings that God gives you and use it to press into greater maturity. Don't let it be like water off the back of the duck. Whereas you find yourself, well, that was neat, but then you're back where you are. But whenever God gives us a particular season of blessing, of power, of unction, refreshment, strengthening of our soul, bless the Lord for that. But then... Use that newfound strength and energy to go deeper with the Lord. Maybe to pick up a, a more difficult theological book. I was asked to promote the book table. 
<laughs> so here it is. Maybe that book that has been speaking to you at a distance for the last couple months. Uh, the Lord comes and gives you some newfound strength from the Spirit of God. And maybe you say, now's the time to take up that book. And I'm going to press on forward. The great Matthew Henry, the commentator of the Bible, says that one of the best ways to keep from apostasy, which is one of the themes of this book of Hebrews, one of the best ways to keep from apostasy is to keep growing. Or if I can use this illustration for the pilots out there, one of the best ways to stay aloft in the airplane is to what? Keep the engine running. If your engine stalls, you better start looking for a field or a highway because you're going to need to put that plane down. But better not to allow the engine to stall at all, but rather to keep that engine going. But I want you to look with me at verse 1 again. Notice here it says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Notice here that the author is not leaving himself out of this conversation or this exhortation. That the author is enjoining himself with the congregation to a corporate pressing on. That is, for example, we who are ministers and elders, we are to be growing in our faith, in our doctrine, and in our piety with the congregation. This is not just us exhorting the congregation, but we as officers need to be pressing on to maturity ourselves. I would ask you to pray for me as your pastor. And I know many of you do, and I, and I appreciate those prayers, and I hear from you, um, and, I, and I appreciate that. But I need your prayers to keep growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even this week, um, I have a, a study week to, to use up uh, this week, and I plan to squirrel away with a pile of books and to give myself to, to reading and pray for the blessing of the Lord. It's usually not only a blessing for the minister, but then those things t seem to redound to the congregation. That uh, Then once the minister is blessed, also the congregation our Westminster Confession Faith has a, a chapter that probably doesn't get as much attention as it should. It's called Of Oaths and Vows. And you might even want to consider taking a vow uh, to study something or to read your Bible in a year. Now, let me give you a caution that you not take a rash vow. Think about what that vow would mean if you took a vow. Also, don't encumber yourself overly with vows. Remember, you already have vows. Those of you who are married have a vow. to Don't neglect that vow to your spouse because you're paying this other newfound vow. Um, you have vows to the church. Don't neglect the vows you've made as covenant parents. But all that to say that if maybe you need the extra discipline uh, to grow and to press into maturity, maybe consider taking a temporary vow that I, you know, in 2024, I'm going to read my Bible through in a year as God, unless God providentially hinders me. I'm going, to, I'm going to press forward into maturity. 
You know, as I've mentioned before, I've known ministers who have fallen away from the faith or made shipwreck of their lives. And as I thought about these verses this week, I, I wondered some about a couple of them. And I said, did they, I wondered, did they stop growing first before the calamity came? That is, what, you know, was there something going on that caused them to stall? The engine stalled first. And then later, we saw the effects of the stall. Uh, you know, these things can be unsettling to us. And I don't want to unsettle anybody who has a, a sensitive conscience and, and, and is lacking assurance. Uh, I, I don't want to break a bruised reed. But at the same time, I do want us to consider uh, that we beware of presumption and that we always be striving. You know, Peter was presumptuous, wasn't he? Lord, I'll never what? I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And yet Jesus says, oh, before this night is over, you're going to do just that. Peter was presumptuous. Uh, we, wanna, we don't want to be presumptuous. Now, by God's grace, Peter was restored here. But um, we need to be careful in how we walk. So, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God. Notice here that the author is saying here, he, he makes an illustration here of somebody who is a builder, an architect, a construction worker. And he says that it is important to have a good foundation, isn't it? It's important to know the elementary things about Christ. But also, once the foundation is laid, the builder needs to move on. Once the concrete has been poured, the superstructure needs to start being framed. And if, if all you do is lay the foundation, well, then you're not doing what Christ would have you to do. As we've said, you know, some churches are very good at welcoming people who are not Christians into the church. Uh, very good at helping people who are new to Christ teaching them these elementary things, but then it kind of stalls out from there, and, there's, and you want to grow more, and it's just that same level. And here at Covenant, we want to do both. We want to be outward-facing, bringing the gospel to those who do not know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, helping those who are new to Christ to grow and establish the foundation that they do need, but then also building that superstructure, starting the, the framing and putting in the plumbing and the wiring and all the rest till the house finally is complete in glory. Now, what are these elementary principles here? What are the first principles of the Christian faith here? If we are to leave these elementary principles and move on into maturity, let's first talk about what they are. The commentators set a different number. There's a little bit of dispute here uh, with regard to verse 1 and 2 as to how many things Paul is actually listing as the elementary or first principles in the Christian faith. I, will, I believe that Paul is summarizing five. 
Some commentators think six. But I believe that two of them, or one of them put together, is in apposition. That is, it's a, it is explaining the other. Let's look at these and see if I can make that clear to you. What are these five first principles that we need for a foundation, but then we also need to make progress in and beyond them? Number one is the person of Jesus Christ. The person and the work of Jesus Christ has to be part of your foundation. There are many that go wrong immediately on that point. That's why we have cults out there, is because they have gotten the person of Christ wrong. So some people who are knocking on your door get point number one here wrong. Sub point number one. They don't believe, for example, that Christ is fully, truly, verily God. And they believe that Christ was created instead of being the eternal son. Historically, the Orthodox Church, by Orthodox, I'm, I'm meaning Orthodox as in uh, right doctrine through the ages, not particular denomination, little o. The Orthodox view of Christ has been that he is fully God, truly God, truly man. Son of God, eternal Son, who has come into this world, clothed His deity with His humanity, without distorting or mixing or confusing either the deity or the humanity. And that this one Christ has two distinct natures in His one person. That's the first principle. Number two, repentance. Notice here that He says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, that's point one, sub point one, the first principle is Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance. So notice here that secondly, repentance. In order to have a, a right understanding if, if you are a Christian or not, you, you have to have an understanding what is repentance. Why repentance? Because this is at the heart of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that Jesus begins his ministry by saying? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist, same thing. Repent, for the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Now, John Owen, the 17th century Puritan theologian, says this about repentance. He says, quote, The Lord Christ came not only to save men from their sins, not only did the Lord Jesus Christ come to save men from their sins, but to turn them from their sins. To turn them from their sins that they may be saved from them. That is, Christ saves us from our sins, but he saves us by turning us from sin. And so it, that, that repentance is always a part of our presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Churches that offer Christ without repentance are truncating the gospel, which is another gospel, which is no gospel at all. Again, to cite John Owen in volume 5 he, of his works on the book of Hebrews, Owen says that repentance is twofold. Number one, first, it is initial. Secondly, it is continued in the whole course of life. That is, what Owen is saying here 
is that repentance needs to be understood in two ways. The first way we understand repentance is by what he calls initial, meaning it is the beginning of your faith in Jesus Christ. When you finally come to that point by God's grace where you turn away from a vector, a life that was oriented towards sin, now, by God's grace, you have turned towards a life towards God and Jesus Christ. Formerly, when I was unregenerate in my sins, I was oriented towards my sinful self and the lusts of the flesh. But when Christ comes into a person's life, he gives the grace not only to believe in Christ, but to turn away from death and sin to Christ and life. So that we are saved, Christ saves me from my sins by turning me away from them. That's point number one, is the initial conversion. That's why we call it conversion. You are turning from one to another. But then, once I turn, I continue imperfectly to keep turning. That is, the Christian life is always going to be one of this struggle of turning away from sin. The reason being is that sin is not eradicated once I come to faith in Christ. The, the struggle is going to be there. You can read about it in Romans 7. We talked about it last week in Romans chapter 7. Yes, I believe Romans 7 is speaking about Paul as a Christian there and the struggle of that ongoing work in our lives of sanctification. So as Martin Luther said in the very first thesis, point number one of his 95 points, he said that the life, the Christian life, is one of ongoing repentance. It's not that I just repent one time, but I am always repenting, always turning. And when I see a sin in my life, then I confess that sin to the Lord and I turn again from it. And if I happen to you know, be short with mom or dad in my tone of voice. What do I do? I, I, I acknowledge that sin and, and I turn from it back towards God. Because why? Well, because the Bible says, honor your father and your mother. And so I, I, I realize I can't live the Christian life and keep talking to mom and dad with a bad tone of voice. I need to honor them. And so I am turning again and again towards what God says to do. So Christ is one of the first principles. First principle number one. Number two is repentance. Now number three is faith. Faith. Faith is the other side of that same coin of repentance. Faith is now looking beyond yourself to the person of Jesus. Faith is believing on God's promise of salvation through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this faith, you know, is got three components to it. One is knowledge. The second is assent. And the third is trust. And you need to have all three if it's going to be genuine faith. Remember, there's such a thing as the faith of a demon. A demon has a knowledge, and the demon may assent to the power of Christ. Please, Lord, don't throw us into the abyss. Put us in the swine herd. But they don't have the third, the fiducia. They don't have the trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so faith 
looks outside of ourself to Jesus Christ as our only hope, we come to the point where we realize I cannot save myself. My works will not do it. My tithing won't do it. My church attendance won't do it. My, you know, trying to be helpful in the neighborhood isn't going to do it. I can't do enough good things to outweigh my previous bad things in my life. I have to leave myself. I have to go outside of myself to this one person in the universe whose name is Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. This is the way, the truth, and the life is Jesus Christ. I look to him. I say, Lord, I believe you. Help my unbelief. You come to him much like the woman with the bleeding problem. What did she do? She saw physicians for years. She spent her money, all her money, all her time on these physicians to help her with this bleeding problem she had, and she was exhausted financially, physically, emotionally. She had no other option. And she comes to the point and she realizes, if I can just touch the edge of his garment, I'll be made well. That's a picture of what it's like to have faith in Jesus Christ. You come to that point, and I'm not saying everybody has to come to the point of complete exhaustion before you put trust in Jesus. But faith will always have that element of, I have to have him or I'm I'm lost. I have to have him or this isn't getting fixed. If God does not save me in his son, then I cannot be saved. So Christ must be preached, repentance must be preached, faith must be preached. Fourthly, notice here that the text says the resurrection has to be preached. Notice that he says, not laying again a foundation of repentance, the end of verse 1, from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands, I'll talk about that in a second, and the resurrection of the dead. So the next elementary principle, and I'm not skipping the washing, the baptism, the laying on of hands, but I want to suggest something to you that 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 is in apposition to what he's describing here. So the next one I would argue is the resurrection of the dead, that the church has to be preaching the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is, of course, one of the great reasons that we as a denomination had to leave the mainline church was because the mainline Presbyterian church was ordaining men into the ministry who did not necessarily believe that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. And there were those who were saying, you can be a good Christian in name and not believe in the resurrection. And we and our forefathers were saying, no, you can't. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that the resurrection, it, it is the sine qua non of, of the faith. That is, without it, you have nothing. Paul makes it clear that if, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, your faith is in vain. Even worse than that, he says, we are found to be false witnesses because we are proclaiming that which is untrue. And so the resurrection of Christ and your future resurrection because you are united to Christ, must be one of those foundational principles that we teach. You know, and you've heard me say this, that today, again, I think there are probably a lot of evangelicals out there who 
you don't think about the resurrection. They know their soul's going to heaven when they die. They know that. But they don't realize that their body is going to be raised from the dead because the body of Christ has been raised from the grave. Jesus' resurrection is but the first fruit of our resurrection. Number five, the judgment that is to come. We also have to preach that there is coming an eternal judgment. That Jesus Christ is coming and he is going to raise the dead. And after the resurrection of the dead, there will be this final and eternal judgment. The separation of all humanity into two camps. One camp on the right hand of Christ, one camp on the left hand of Christ. Those on the right hand of Christ, he will say, Well done, my good and faithful servants. Come and enter into the joy of your Father. And to others he will say, I never knew you. Depart ye cursed into everlasting fire. And there is coming this day of judgment. Remember how Paul preached judgment when he was under house arrest and some of the civil magistrates wanted to listen to Paul preach. And Paul began to preach about the final judgment and he said, okay, that's enough, Paul. You can go back to your cell now. I've heard enough. He came under conviction. It was a terrifying thing to him and he didn't want to hear anymore. Now, let me uh, turn our attention just real quickly here, okay? Because you say, well, okay, how come those five pastors, but you skipped, I noticed, I was reading in here in my Bible with you, you skipped the instruction about washing and laying on of hands. Okay, so here's the, the, the debate if you want to get into the weeds of the commentaries. Is the instruction about washing and laying on of hands, is that inclusive of these foundational principles or is it not? I'm going to argue that, that, is, that it is in apposition. What does apposition mean? Apposition is a way of describing something else that has already been stated here. That is here, look at the text with me here. I think... And I do have Calvin on my side on this one. Just to let you know, this is just not your pastor going half-cocked half here. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying, again, a foundation of repentance from dead works, that is, you've got to preach Christ, you've got to preach repentance, and of faith toward God. And then he says, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands. That is, I don't know that Paul here is necessarily saying you got to teach about baptism and the laying on of hands as one of those first principles about the Christian faith. I think what Paul is saying here and what we know to be true in our churches, because this is what we do, is that as you teach these foundational Christian principles, these are the principles that you need for what? For baptism. And for the laying on of hands. And the laying on of hands, is it, what's in view there, remember this is a first century church. So the gospel is going into new communities. They hear the gospel, they repent, and then they need to be baptized. And what Paul is saying here is these, there are certain foundational truths that need to be taught before you're baptized. As they, you need to know these truths. You, you need to know about Christ, repentance, faith, resurrection, judgment to be baptized. Now you say, but what about the laying on of hands? What, what is that referring to? I think 
And here again, I agree with Calvin on this, that what, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is, remember, just like in our church, we have communicant members and non-communicant members. So that there, in that first century, there would have been people who believed on Christ and they became communicant members because of their, their, their ability to make a credible profession of faith. And they knew these foundational principles. Many of them had children who weren't ready yet to do that. But they, being brought into the covenant, were baptized. Calvin says that he also believes this verse 2 is a proof text of pedo-baptism, interestingly enough. That was, that was new to me. But the laying on of hands, now many of you don't realize this because you probably close your eyes when we, when we go to prayer. But when we have a young person come up to the front and they take the vows and they confess their faith publicly before God and before the congregation, and they they confess those five vows that we read to them. One of the things that we do, what do we do immediately after? We say, let's pray. Now, what you may not see, because maybe your head bows immediately and your eyes close, is that I take my hand and I put it on the back of their shoulder, or on their back, and we pray. That is, we receive somebody into the membership, communicant membership of the church, somebody who has been baptized, but now has made a profession of faith, now that we are satisfied, they know these first principles, we then lay hands on them through the minister, through the elders, and pray for them, bringing them into that communicant membership. And so I think what is in view here is that the beginning of verse 2 is not to be understood as inclusive of these first principles, but namely saying these are the first principles which prepare you for baptism and communicant membership here. I know that's a kind of a technical argument there, and not everybody in the Reformed world is in agreement on that, but there it is. Some would see this, uh, Matthew Henry is one. Matthew Henry says there are not five, there are six here, and he includes some of those uh, that I just mentioned here. Um, but let me go to the applications because we need to finish here. What, what do we say? And I'll give you two parts here by way of closing. Number one, first of all, we see today something of the basics that we should seek to communicate to non-Christians. One of the things I think these two verses teach us is how do we as mature believers reach out to people who may not know Christ yet. Where do I start with them? Well, I would suggest that one of the best places to start are these five points. Christ, repentance, faith, the resurrection, and judgment. If you have people in your family that you are thinking about witnessing to, or maybe you've got a neighbor that you've been talking to, and you're trying to help them figure out what is the most important thing that they need to know. You might want to start there. The second application in closing is this. We see, secondly, our own need to grow. Remember what the exhortation is here. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity. That is, once the foundation has been established, let's build the superstructure here. So how do I do this? How do I press on to maturity? Number one, what you're doing right now. Be in church. Be there for the services. Don't skip church services unless you're providentially hindered. 
Be there for the preaching. Be there for the sacrament. Be there for the fellowship. God would have us grow in grace, usually not in solitary confinement. There are some believers who have to suffer that. We pray for Wang Yi in China because he's in prison for the sake of the gospel. And we trust that through our prayers and the prayers of many others, that Wang Yi is still growing in grace, though he is cut off from the visible church. But, nevertheless, that is not the ordinary way God causes. That is an extraordinary way that God causes somebody to grow in grace. Don't skip church services. Number two, be much in Scripture and in good books. Sometimes a good Christian book can do wonders for your soul. Sometimes it can even be life-changing. It's interesting that we read the Apostle Paul in his pastoral letters. He tells his younger colleague to do what? He says, bring the parchments, bring the books. Isn't that interesting? The Apostle Paul, of all people, felt the need to continue to study and to read Bring the books. Number three, don't neglect the prayer meeting. The prayer meeting is an important part of the means of grace where we as a church come together and pray as a family together to sign the petitions with many signatures. And then outside of those means, also we could include family worship, using the Bible reading at home, prayer with the family, prayer with your wife, praying with your children before bed, private prayer, solitary prayer. There are times where we need, Jesus says, to go into our inner room and shut the door. Many of you young moms probably could use that, couldn't you? To get away and shut the door. <laughs> just for a few minutes alone with the Lord. And then meditation, self-examination. Don't neglect sitting quietly and thinking about yourself and about the Word of God. Also, godly fellowship. We are not solitary creatures. We are to be walking together in the Lord. And then finally, ministering to others. One of the best ways you teach yourself is when you take up the responsibility of teaching others. Whether those others are Sunday school children, neighborhood Bible study, uh, starting an office kind of devotional, whatever it might be, look for an opportunity where you can be a teacher of other people. One of the best ways for you to learn is for you to instruct.